My dad would hemorrhage if he saw those flags improperly displayed. <laughs> Being that it's <laughs> 4th of July and we have all of our military personnel here, it just seems appropriate. <laughs> Please join me in God's Word in Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, we're going to return to our study of this amazing book in the doctrines of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and I'm going to begin reading verse 21 down through verse 31. You can follow along with me. Paul writes, But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ, for all who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God he passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? Of works? No, but by, law. No, but by a law of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since indeed God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith is one. Do we then nullify the law through faith? May it never be. On the contrary, we establish the law. Let's pray together before we go to his word and study. Our God in heaven, it would be our desire to have our hearts opened by your spirit to receive the truths of the gospel as Paul has presented it here in this letter to the church in Rome. Let it be the letter to the church here at Summit Park as well. Let it minister to our hearts. Allow your spirit to open our eyes to see the glory of what is being written here, the glory of what we've received as believers. And God in heaven, we ask also that if there are those among us or hearing us today, that those hearts that are unsaved will be opened by your good hand. And that you will allow them to see the glory of your son and the redemption that is found only in his cross and lead them by faith to yourself. For those of us that belong to you by faith, will you enrich our lives, increase our understanding, and magnify our zeal to be representatives, proclaimers, and livers of this gospel faith. We thank you for the message that is here we thank you for each one that's gathered in your presence. Speak to us now and allow me the ability to speak clearly on these things as well. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. In presenting a thorough treatment of the gospel, Paul has de dedicated, as we've noted before, a significant portion of his letter to the church in Rome to the subject or the doctrine of God's wrath, his judgment against sin. And this has left both Jew and Gentile under the condemnation of God's judgment. 
going back to chapter 1, verse 18, all the way to our last verse of study, chapter 3 and verse 20, Paul has made the case that all are under sin because no one has been able to walk in perfect righteousness before God. No one has done good by God's measure. There's not even any that have sought after God without God's intervention. Verse 21 then marks a significant change in the tone and the direction of Paul's gospel presentation. The doctrine of God's wrath we know to be essential to our understanding and our trusting in the cross of Jesus Christ. But with that foundational understanding set in place, Paul now moves forward, verse 21, to present the doctrine of justification. And this significant change takes place right here at the beginning of verse 21, and it's emphasized by Paul with two words in our English translation, but now. And you can sense the direction that Paul is going to change, and it is a significant one. This is one word in the Greek, two in our English language, but now. And one scholar refers to this as Paul's great turning point. So if you're filling in the blanks, I'd like you to see that. This is a great turning point in this letter. And this turning point, as Paul would show, is the cross of Jesus Christ. It is the righteousness of God's Son, which man could never attain to. It is the work of justification that he, God, accomplished when he died and rose again for the sins of people. It is the salvation offered to sinners who come to Christ by faith and receive the righteousness of God that men could never attain to. This is a faith that accepts the Son of God as the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And here in verse 21, Paul turns from his lengthy presentation of God's wrath that all men are under to now show the hope of divine righteousness that God provides for sinners in Jesus Christ. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who is the one that referred to Paul's but now as the great turning point, he continues by writing this of verse 21. It is the beginning of one of the major sections of the whole epistle. So beginning this morning, verse 21, we're going to continue for many weeks, many chapters in Romans on this great theme, the hope of salvation. The justification that is found in the cross of Christ. The songs that we sung this morning of worship to Christ and God our Father, I hope you note, were very, very essential to our understanding here. They blended in so well with what Paul is writing in these opening words of our study this morning. Opening words beginning verse 21. I believe that what makes this gospel transition so apparent to us is that God has revealed his saving work. He's put it on display. He's made it known. You go back to chapter 1, verse 18. It says that the wrath of God was revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. Now something else is being revealed here. The but now has changed direction. And I want us to observe, and this is kind of the theme of where I'm going with our study this week and for the next week as well is that God has manifested, he's revealed something. You'll notice verse 21, that God has been manifesting, being witnessed by the law and prophets. This is visible. God's putting it on display. Verse 25, God publicly displayed his son who accomplishes redemption for his sinners. He then writes that this was done to demonstrate 
God's righteousness. And that demonstration is repeated again in verse 26. And then the great purpose for this exhibition by God, this putting on display, is noted. Verse 26. So that God would be seen as perfect in his justice, and yet the one who would justify all who have faith in Christ. This is a manifestation of the glory of the cross of Jesus Christ. And the expression of God's revelation in verse 25 is that of a public display. This word chosen by Paul has the meaning of an exhibition put on by God, hence the title of this series that we're going to be talking about today or today and next week as well. And what God exhibits to make known in his justice on behalf of sinners is his son who reveals the righteousness of God himself. And this will be the tone of our study through the end of chapter 3, beginning in verse 21 to verse 26. The first section that we want to consider is the satisfaction that God has accomplished on behalf of sinners. The satisfaction of sinners. And this satisfaction comes from a very important word that we're going to look at a little bit later in verse 25. It is the word propitiation, which shows that God's justice... His justice was satisfied on our behalf by the redemption of Jesus Christ who poured out his blood for our sins on the cross. That word propitiate means God's satisfaction has been met. And in this sense, man is being rescued from God himself. Man is being, the sinners are being rescued from God himself and God is the one doing the rescuing. And we're going to look at this amazing word, propitiation, more fully when we get to verse 25. But this satisfaction becomes a general theme of verses 21 to 26 through the appearance, through the manifestation of the righteousness of God. Now, several contrasts emerge from Paul's presentation in these verses that express the but now of verse 21. The transition from God's wrath, the doctrine of wrath, to now the doctrine of righteousness or justification that is found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the first of these contrasts, I think, is going to be very evident to us. It is faith, not law. Verse 21 and 22, faith, not law. The turning point in Paul's mind in verse 21 seems to be directed toward a Jewish understanding of righteousness because of, you'll notice, the mention of the law. And it's twice mentioned there in verse 21. The first mention of the law is that the law is going to be apart from this manifestation of righteousness. And that's going to be a description for us of man's inability to live the law of righteousness themselves. So apart from that, apart from man's effort to live righteousness, comes the righteousness of God to us. That tells us something important. And then we see further that the second mention of the law is speaking of the whole of the Old Testament. It is something witnessed by the law and the prophets, this this manifestation of righteousness. So we're going to consider these aspects this morning. If the Gentile world is to understand their need of a Savior, and since God declared to Abraham that through his seed all of the nations of the world would be blessed, then the giving of God's law to Israel would be a witness of God's righteousness, not just to the Jew, but the Gentile has to see this as well. So Paul starts off hinting, verse 21, at speaking to the Jew only, but he's not. 
He's speaking to Jew and Gentile alike because the Gentile, you and I this morning, that don't happen to be Jewish, we need to see and understand this law. We need to understand what's being communicated here in a Jewish context so that we understand the manifestation of God's righteousness. In other words, as non-Jews, we read the Old Testament witness of the law and prophets, we learn of God's righteousness and the Jews' failure to keep that righteousness. The Jews then are a testimony to us of man's inability to live in righteousness before God, even when everything was handed to that nation that God was willing to supply. His glory, his miracles, speaking directly to them, singling that nation out among all other nations as his own chosen people, displaying his miracles in amazing ways, speaking directly to them through the prophets, giving to them the 39 books of the Old Testament, God's word to his chosen people. They were giving all that they need to live the law of God's righteousness, but they could not do it. As Gentiles, we need to understand that. What that is communicating to us is man's inability to live in righteousness before God. So at first glance, verse 21 seems to be a bit of a contradiction in its presentation of the law. God's righteousness is revealed apart from the law, which almost implies we don't need the law. And then second mention of the law is the Old Testament scripture, a revelation of God's righteousness through his prophets, through the the written word, the inspired word of God. That God's righteousness is now revealed apart from the law shows us that man is not able to live up to God's mark of perfection. So the first mention of the law, again, says that man cannot, by his own efforts, keep the law that was given to them by God with all of the amazing conditions that God gave to Israel. On the other hand, noting the second reference to the law, God's righteousness was witnessed By the law and prophets, it's an expression that most certainly applies to the Old Testament scripture. God declared his righteousness through his word to Israel, and the Old Testament record of Israel makes very clear to both Jew and Gentile that in the very best of conditions, man cannot keep, he cannot walk in God's will. At the same time, the prophet spoke of a coming Messiah. In other words, more is to come. God has provided a way. And this is where verse 22 brings our understanding. Jesus Christ is that anointed one. He is the promised Messiah sent by God to accomplish God's righteousness for his people because his people could not do so. So do you see the contrast that Paul gives us? Faith and law, the first mention of law, man can't keep it. The second mention of law, God is declaring to his people his righteousness. And his righteousness is yet to come through the prophets as they proclaim the coming of Messiah. The but now, the righteousness of God is manifested in his son's coming. That's what the reference is. But now, Messiah has come. And in the son's work on the cross, it accomplished what men could never do by the law that was given to them. Paul then adds how sinners lay hold of that manifested righteousness in contrast to man's failure at law keeping. Verse 22, the righteousness of God through what? Faith. It's not through the keeping of the law. 
It's through faith. It would do sinners no good if God provided his salvation through the cross of his son and then did not give us access to that salvation. We contrast that to the law. The righteousness of God was given to Israel, but they had no ability to meet the righteousness of God through the keeping of that law. Not so with Christ and his cross. We have access to the righteousness of God that the law could not provide. What, 20, what verse 22 affirms is that through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross, our righteousness is fully dealt with, our unrighteousness, I should say, is fully dealt with as he bore our sins, was judged for those sins, and as Christ made full atonement for those sins before God and through his death. As sinners place their faith in his atoning sacrifice, the unrighteousness is removed of men, and the righteousness of God, the righteousness of his Son, covers the believer. And this work is for all who believe. God makes no distinction between Jew and Gentile. We've seen that in chapter 3 and chapter 2 as well. All are under sin. God makes no distinction. All need a Savior. And therefore, all who come by faith will be saved, both Jew and Gentile. Both must come by faith in the work of Christ and not by the works of men. Even man's feeble attempt at keeping the law of God. And this brings us to verse 23 and 24, another contrast. Gift, not glory. And I have to explain this one because the second contrast is that of God's giving of this gift versus man's efforts at achieving the glory of God. And Paul makes clear here, we have missed the mark. And he gives us the, the, the image of shooting an arrow that falls short of the target or that misses the, the bullseye. In the best of man's efforts, we could never achieve the glory of God. So this is a contrast between God giving us a gift that we could never merit on our own versus that effort to reach the glory of God by our own works. Salvation must be gifted to sinners by God because we have no ability to glorify God in and of ourselves, not by our works keeping, not by our deeds. The first part of verse 23 is an explanation to there being no distinction before God on who puts their faith in his son. All who believe will be saved because or for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. God makes no distinction between sinners. They all need this gift. They all need his grace. When we read the word gift, this means that God makes no distinction between the really wicked sinner and the mildly sinful person. It doesn't matter if you're a very faithful Jewish law keeper or if you're a very worldly Gentile law breaker. All have sinned. All have fallen short of attaining the glory of God by their own efforts. So therefore, justifying sinners will then need to be a gift that God gives. And we observe that this gift is not given because we've been somewhat agreeable to God or that we've been cooperative with him in some measure. Nor can it be said that we have any good to offer God so that he would give us a gift. And this is a little bit different than our gift giving when we have birthdays or weddings or celebrations of some sort. We give gifts because we have a mutual exchange, a mutual relationship of love. 
It is not so with God. Paul is very clear here. Sinners are justified as a gift granted by his grace. Sinners were not on good terms with God the moment he gave that gift. And that applies to every one of us. The moment I came to faith in Christ, I was not on good terms with God. I was at enmity with God. So the gift is entirely unearned and undeserved. The good works or righteous deeds of men have no part in this Because it's already been established, we have no goodness. We have no righteousness. There's not even one of us that qualify, according to chapter 3, verse 10 through verse 18. God's righteousness towards sinner is apart from man's keeping of the law. And if we've not come to this conclusion from the previous two verses, certainly the previous three chapters have made this clear. All of us, before Christ, were under the wrath of God. And this brings us to what Paul says this gift of God is that cannot be earned, that's entirely undeserved. The gift is that sinners are justified by God's grace. And it's through the redemptive work accomplished on the cross by Christ that we are so, that we are justified. Justification is a very important word in our understanding of the gospel. Because if the gospel is going to be faithfully proclaimed, as the book of Romans does, God cannot simply dismiss our sins because he's kind, because he's loving, because he's tolerant. He cannot just declare us pardoned. As R.C. Sproul once wrote, God never negotiates his righteousness. God will never lay aside his holiness to save us. God will never lay aside his holiness to save us. In our justification, God's perfect justice has to be satisfied. And the terms of his justice, they will not compromise his holiness. And because sinners could never atone for their own sins, God sent his perfect son in our stead to atone for our sins on our behalf. And in God's mercy toward his people... He provided a salvation that does not rest on our righteousness because, again, we have none. Chapter 3, verse 10. There is none righteous. No, not one. His salvation would rest on the only one who is truly righteous and who would be approved by God. And it has to be his only begotten son, Jesus Christ. It is Jesus that was sacrificed in our place. Christ is the one that bore the full weight of our sin on himself. He's the one enduring the wrath and judgment of God against our sin because sin had to be punished. This is where the justice of God is seen. And it was Jesus Christ that poured out his own blood to the point of death because sin must be paid for. The wages of sin is death. And in this way, Jesus Christ redeemed God's people by his work through his righteousness and his sacrifice and his suffering. It has been said that God loves his son as much as he hates sin. God loves his son to the same degree that he hates sin. And the reasoning is the cross proves that. God was willing to see his son expire to see his son laden with our unrighteousness, our wickedness, and then to turn his own wrath against his son so that he could deal with the sins of his people. 
God's justification of sinners was not a matter of simply excusing our sin. Our sinful lives had to be redeemed. Our sin was fully paid for by the blood of Christ's Son, or God's Son. And so satisfactory was this work of God that God made a legal declaration, what is referred to as a forensic declaration, because of his work on our behalf. It could be said this way, that God pronounced in the court of heaven, these ones are mine, these ones that have come by faith in my son, they are mine. They're under the blood sacrifice of my son by faith. I am declaring them justified in my sin, in my sight. They are justified in my sight. And that's the gift of God's grace. This is a gift that cannot be earned, deserved, or in any way contributed to. It is a gift completely accomplished by Jesus Christ apart from any merit of men, not even by the works of God's law as performed by sinners. The gift of God's grace was through the redeeming work of Jesus. Again, because all have sinned, all fall short of God's glory, only Jesus can save. And this brings us to the third contrast, that of the Savior and not the saved. And again, this needs to be explained, but as we look at verse 25 and 26, this third contrast appears in the words of Paul that the gospel of God puts on display the Savior and not those being saved because, again, those being saved have no righteousness. We have nothing to bring. We have all fallen short of trying to get to the glory of God, trying to uh, display the glory of God in our own works. We just can't make it. The glory has to be the Savior and not those being saved. This is really a contrast seen throughout the full context of verse 21 through 26. That which is being manifested, that which is being put on display and demonstrated in a visible way is not how good we were or even how righteous we have been made. This passage is showing the display of God's Son, God's righteousness, God's gift of grace, God's justification, even God's forbearance with sinners is noted here. In truth, Paul has just stated in verse 23 that we couldn't even muster enough goodness in our works to glorify God in any measure. We've all fallen short of His glory. And the glory of the gospel is about a God, his character, and what he has done for us. And the end of verse 24 has exalted the redemption of Jesus Christ as the means of the justification of sinners. This was God's gift of grace. Verse 25 picks up on this view of Jesus Christ as the one, note, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because of the forbearance of God. He passed over the sins previously committed. Why? For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time. And that present time gets now back to the but now expression of Paul. So that he, God, would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. This is such a strong emphasis on God, on God's work here. The display, the promotion of his son, his righteousness, and his justice. And we see that first through the gospel. Jesus Christ is publicly displayed. 
He is the one that accomplished the propitiation in his blood sacrifice on the cross. And again, that word propitiate should be very precious to us that belong to Christ this morning. It gives us the but now contrast between the wrath of God that we are under because of our sin to now the gracious declaration that God made on our behalf. This one is justified. This one comes under the blood of my son. Propitiation tells us that the cross of God's son settled all the demands of God's wrath. When we read about those that are under sin, we're reminded that prior to faith in Christ, we stood before God's throne as judged and condemned in our sin. We were, as Ephesians 2 said, dead in our trespasses and sin. We are children of wrath, but now we are a people who have been propitiated by the blood of Jesus Christ. No longer are we under God's wrath because the cross fully satisfied God's justice. If you're a believer, are you not thankful for the word propitiate? We are no longer under the wrath of God. We're under grace, a gift that's been given to us. And God has declared the sinner, he's now justified in my presence. There's no sin against him. The Savior has covered it all. And second notice in verse 25, again emphasizing the glory of God in this redemption, this act of redeeming sinners was to accomplish or demonstrate or show forth God's righteousness. As believers, we are not put on display to promote ourselves or to show how amazing we are as Christians. The church should be a living billboard of God's gracious giving of Christ's satisfactory atonement of God's perfect justice when the world or other believers look on us it is not our personal righteousness that's on display here but the righteousness of God and as others look at us as individuals that's what they should see it's not me trying to promote my goodness but if anything people should see this is what God has done to a sinner and has now declared this one that was under my wrath, he's justified under my son's blood. That's what we hope the world sees, or our children see as we raise them up in Christ, in the gospel. Prior to faith, not a single one of us had any righteousness that God approved of or accepted. We had nothing to bring. Simply to the cross I what? Cling. This is the expression that Paul is giving to us in these verses. And along with propitiation is the word expiation, which is a fundamental doctrine of justification as well. Paul doesn't name it here, but it is part of what God has accomplished through the cross of his son. Our sin is not ignored. It is not simply swept under the carpet. But when we come to faith in the Savior, our sin is taken away. It is expiated. It is removed from us. As far as the east is from the west, so far has my bent transgression taken from me. That's Psalm 103 as was read to us this morning. But I want you to turn to Colossians chapter 2 because Paul expresses this in a very graphic way with the cross in view. Colossians chapter 2 verse 13 and 14 We read, when you were dead in your transgression and the uncircumcision of flesh, there's the doctrine of wrath, 
He, here's the change, here's the but now. He made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgression. Canceled out the certificate of decrees that were against us, which were hostile to us. And he's taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. What this passage is telling us is that when we came to faith in Christ, all the charges were dropped. The sin was taken away because his son made full payment for them. Every one of them on the cross. And in Romans chapter 3.25, Paul adds that the reason this put God's righteousness on display is because God restrained his hand of judgment until the matter was settled on the cross. It's the forbearance of God. God waited down through history until his son accomplished all that was necessary. Why did the Old Testament believers never have to pay for sin or die in condemnation before God? After all, the redemption of the cross had not yet been completed. It wasn't because of the blood of animal sacrifices. Because according to Hebrews chapter 10, the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin. So the Old Testament sacrifices didn't deal with their sin. It is because they believed the promise of God that salvation was coming. Abraham believed, remember, and was credited him as righteousness. Or what of the sins of the one who has not yet come to faith, but whom God has chosen and intends to call to his son in his time? That one is not condemned either. They are still under their sin prior to faith. But God in his forbearance is waiting for that moment when he, God, would draw that one to his son. He would put his faith in the cross of Christ that happened 2,000 years ago. The sins previously committed before the cross or even before faith occurs are not judged by God because of his forbearance. He withholds his hand of justice against sin and against those ones so that in his time, God's righteousness is displayed in bringing sinners to faith in Christ. And by faith, propitiation, expiation, this puts the glory of God on display. And yet for those who have not or will not believe, God will show his forbearance now. But the day will come when all sinners will stand before his judgment seat and they will experience the justice of God against sin and all unbelievers will be condemned to God's eternal wrath, his eternal punishment. God withholds his punishment of sin until that day. That's the character of God's forbearance. By contrast, verse 26 shows God's righteousness is on full display at this present time through the cross of his son. The world saw Christ lifted up and they were ashamed of what they saw. They mocked what they saw. And we were among those mockers, were we not? Until we came to faith in Christ. And then we see the display of God's righteousness. We see the marvelous glory of his justification. We see the glory of God's Son accomplishing all that His Father required of Him on our behalf so that we can be declared righteous and justified. In that act, God showed Himself to be just, not just brushing aside sin. God is the just one. He required sin to be paid for. 
and therefore he had his son make that payment. So God is just. He didn't just ignore or brush sin aside or treat sin with less condemnation than it deserved. He punished his own son. He turned his wrath against his son and judged his son as the substitute for us. Then Jesus died on the cross to make payment for sin. And with that justice leveled against Christ, God now turns to those who believe in his son and he declares them justified. Therefore, God is just. He's the justifier of those who put faith in his son. What verses 25 and 26 draw our attention to see is the glory of God's redeeming grace. We see clearly the display of his righteousness in bringing full forgiveness to undeserving sinners. This is about the glory of the Savior, not the glory of those saved. We see the gift of grace in how God justifies sinners through the cross of his son. And as his son was lifted up on the cross, even as his gospel is told again and again, God is putting on display the, pro- the propitiation of Christ's blood, his sacrifice on our behalf. So every time we preach Christ to our children, to our neighbors, our co-workers, we're putting the majesty, the glory of God's righteousness on full display, whether they accept it or not. There is the glory of God and who he is, what he's accomplished. Because of the cross, God declares the believing sinner justified. And this gospel puts on display God's grace, his righteousness. It tells the story of God's love and mercy for sinners and what he accomplishes for undeserving people. And there are just a few thoughts that I'd highlight as we consider how this passage will affect our Christian living and our witness. And I want to just very quickly give these summary points as we bring this part of our worship service to a close. First, this is about his glory, not mine. His glory, not mine. And that's the but now of verse 21. This should be a good reminder to us that the moment we come to faith in Jesus Christ, our lives become about living for his glory and not our own. And as today's passage makes clear, prior to faith in the cross, we have all fallen short of the glory of God. We were not redeemed because we had some hint of it or some hint of goodness in us. It is only the redemption of Christ that has justified us, only his sacrifice has settled God's wrath and removed sin. And we only manifest God's righteousness in ourselves because of faith apart from our works. Not only are we to be living before the world and the church to promote his righteousness and not our own, but when we share the gospel story, again, it's him we're putting on display. And we can tell others about what God has done for our life so long as we're very careful to show the glory belongs to him. I was nothing before. I deserved wrath. I deserved judgment. I deserved hell. And I deserved it for eternity. But by his grace, a gift was given. This is about telling the story of him, God, his son, his righteousness, and the justice that he offers to sinners by faith. We must make certain that all the glory should be for the Lord. It's the light of his righteousness, his grace, and his justice that people should walk away with. That's the takeaway. It's about the righteousness of Christ. Second, 
This is about faith in him, not in self. Faith in him, faith in God, not in self. And I think this is the hardest part of gospel living at times. We gladly accept that we have no work or merit to add to our salvation. I think as Christians, do we not value the fact that we come by faith alone and not by our works because we know we don't have any works? But then we live faith as if now we are in control and that God is no longer involved or not heavily involved in the matter. I got to figure things out for myself. I got to work through this problem myself. And when we cannot control it, when we finally figure that out, what follows? Fear, anxiety, discouragement, even depression. It settles in for the stay. If we have the faith that God is great enough to accomplish our salvation and provide us with eternal life, if he has the power to justify us as sinners, should we not trust him to get us there into eternity by the same power and grace? And yet we struggle through this life trying to figure it out ourselves and to live by our own power, our own reason, and our own solution, our own disciplines. And when we finally see that we can't do it, oftentimes we turn to discouragement. This is calling us to live by faith because of the power, the majesty, the righteousness of God, not our own. And third, this is about grace and not merit. Grace and not merit. This is how we are saved. All that we are in Christ is a gift of God's grace. If we truly understand this, then how we treat one another should be a reflection of grace, not what we feel the other person deserves. And I do believe it is often our instinct to treat other people the way that we think they deserve. So if they're somewhat unkind towards us, how am I going to respond? Well, I've got some choice words for them. I've got a little bit of an attitude I want to show them. Do we really know how to extend grace as grace has been extended to us. This is about living grace, showing grace, and it's not our grace, but we're extending the grace that God has extended to us. And when it comes to how we talk to each other, this is the Spirit's instruction for us, and I want to close with Colossians 4, verse 6. Listen carefully to these words. Let your speech always be with grace, as though seasoned with salt so that you will know how you should respond to each person. How is it we're supposed to respond to our enemies? Jesus said we're supposed to love our enemies. That's a gracious response that the enemy doesn't deserve. But we're reacting to people, we're reacting to fellow believers, now as believers, with grace. Why do we do that? It's because I was terribly offensive to God, and he was gracious enough to forgive me without any merit, without any deserving actions on my part, God graciously saves. So he calls his church, show my saving grace by how you're gracious to others. Our Father in heaven, as we prepare our hearts to celebrate the sacrifice of your son on our behalf, we couldn't be more blessed than to have the words of Paul from Romans chapter 3 showing us the manifestation of your righteousness, reminding us again that we came to you with nothing to offer. We were drawn, rather, 
by you to your son, by your grace. It is a precious gift that we have. And we thank you for this testimony of Paul in showing us the glory of the cross as now we prepare our hearts to worship your son in the giving up of himself on that cross. In Christ's name we pray, amen.